0: I'm James Norton.
1: And I'm Dina Graziano.
0: And this is Homeland Homeroom.
1: Today, we're talking about the upcoming midterm elections and immigration policy, specifically the impact that security and immigration policy may have on voter turnout for both Democrats and Republicans.
0: And we're really glad to be joined by Brian Walsh, former chief communications strategist for the Senate Republican whip John Cornyn, an NRSC senior official and now GOP strategist and partner at Rock Solutions. Welcome, Brian.
1: So, Brian, we're here to talk about the current state of politics. Um, I'd love to get your take on what the current state is of the GOP. And obviously, what do you think um, the current policies are going to mean for the elections and turnouts and for incumbents?
2: Well, I don't think there's any question that Republicans are facing very serious headwinds going into this fall. You know, there's roughly 60 Republican seats that are competitive. Uh, you know, they had 44 retirements. Anytime you have an open seat, it gives the opposing party a good opportunity to pick it up. And, you know, Democrats only need to win 23 of those to win back control of the majority. The president's approval ratings uh, continue to weigh them down in a lot of key districts. I think Republicans are in better shape in the Senate, uh, largely because they're fighting on Democratic uh, territory. Democrats are defending 10 seats in states won by the president in 2016. But if you look at the map, there is a path. I I think Republicans are favored to retain control of the Senate, but I think there is a path for Democrats to also win control of the Senate as well.
1: So some of the stances of the Trump administration have been... Interesting at best. Um, How do you think they've put some of these, you know, the position they've put Republicans in right now, especially ones that are running in key swing states?
2: Well, look, Republicans want to be talking about the economy right now. We have low unemployment. Uh, The economy, by any measure, is doing very well. Unfortunately, day in and day out, (laughs) they frequently aren't able to talk about that because the president is tweeting something or saying something uh, and taking them off message. Uh, You know, I see a lot of polling, and, you know, there were two definitive points. Uh, in recent months, where Republicans really took a hit, or the president did, and then by virtue of that, Republicans did. Um, one was after the president's summit with Putin, uh, where you know he appeared to sort of, you know, certainly didn't take a tough stance against him, and I think even some Trump voters were wondering what was going on there. And the second uh, was the separation of the families at the border, and I think there's no question that the president's immigration policies, while maybe popular with you know, the 38% of Americans who comprise his base and, you know, Republicans, they are broadly unpopular among voters who will decide these elections, suburban women, independents, and obviously Hispanics, who are the fastest growing sector of the American electorate.
0: Yeah, I mean, you raise a good point. I mean, when, when President Trump took that famous ride down the elevator a couple of years ago and announced he was running for for president, he basically announced that he was going to have this hardline immigration policy. And that's really where the build the wall chant started for him and his base and, you know, that hasn't really gone away. However, you know, he hasn't really built the wall yet, you know, and he hasn't really gotten a lot of funding for it. So there actually has been a lot of resistance, you know, amongst Republicans, whether it's in the Senate or the House to kind of fund this wall. Um, But it still seems to be a big mantra of of his. You talk about his tweets. He's always talking about building the wall. We're talking about potentially a government shutdown or he's threatening government shutdown. Um, You know, how have Republicans been able to kind of dance in between the raindrops there in terms of his, what his agenda is and what his quote-unquote base might want, but yet what they're kind of doing here in, here in D.C. the last 18 months.
2: I think when it's come to the wall, so there's the politics of it, and then there's the policy of it. If you talk to most people who understand homeland security, they would say a 3,000-mile wall or 2,000-mile is the most expensive and least effective way to secure the border. That's why I think that you're, you're seeing a lot of... Uh, a lot of pushback, but also, you know, they're caught in the fact that they also don't want to get crosswise with Republican voters in their states who support the president. I mean, look, even, you know, at his comments on Puerto Rico, which were totally outrageous and essentially... That's generous. You know, know, (laughs) essentially denying the the deaths of 3,000 Americans. Uh, Obviously, there were some members in Florida who were running who, of course, had to separate themselves, but you largely heard silence from a lot of other... Members, I mean, they just don't want to be the subject of a tweet. They don't want to put themselves, you know, um, in the spotlight to get crosswise with the president. I don't necessarily think that's good for our country, but or the party know, or the party I in mean, the long term. You've
1: got a lot of great members out there who are staying silent on issues that I think are really important to their to their base that are more moderate and are kind of standing by, hearing all of this crazy rhetoric and not really standing up.
0: Well, I mean, speaking of that, and speaking of specific races, I mean, Will Hurd is a is a moderate Republican. I think a lot of people on the Hill on both sides of the aisle really like. He's great. Will Hurd. It he's likes to be the
1: new face. A lot of
0: compromise. Yeah, he successfully passed you know several pieces of legislation. Um, you know, former CIA operative, and he's got a intelligence background, and he has come out essentially with his own immigration plan that was not necessarily in line with the White House or the or the president. And he's essentially opposed to the wall. He's down there campaigning. He's in a tight race. What can her do in the last, you know, 45 days here to drum up enough support, knowing showing that, you know, he can make a difference in the Republican majority and he's going to have a voice somewhere, somewhere in there. I and mean, what, what can he do?
2: Well, pure on the purely political level, the NRCC groups like the Congressional Leadership Fund are spending a lot of money helping to educate voters on his behalf with or with ads and whatnot. Um, uh, a lot of the people around the country who are chanting, build the wall, don't realize that almost all that property in Texas is private land. <laughs> right. And so you're basically, you know, you're saying on the one hand, I'm a conservative and I'm not, you know, I'm against a big government, but yet you're supporting a policy where the federal government would go over and take thousands of land, well, the land of thousands of landowners. And so this idea, again, it's, it's, you know, it's the difference between a campaign rhetoric and the practical reality on the ground. And that's why you know members from Texas, uh, and especially Will Hurd, who represents a massive swath of the border, are saying this is not the right way to do it.
1: But then maybe it's, it's trying to figure out how we go back to core principles. And it's not just on the Republican side. I feel like in a lot of ways, the Democrats have also lost what you would think the core principles of the Democratic Party were. How do we get back to the center where we're actually talking about real policies and real, you know, real issues versus political rhetoric or, like you said, a ridiculous idea of building a wall on the Rio Grande or, you know, taking away people's property, which is totally against all of the things Republicans stood for. How do we get back to the center?
2: Yeah, I think it's tough because, you know, we are seeing a real tribalism in politics. And look, I think Republican strategists would love more Democratic <laughs> candidates talking about abolish ICE because mm-hmm. it's something that is obviously fairly unpopular, not supported by many people. Um, I do think apathy on the, among not just apathy among the Republican voters, but general not uh, recognizing the political reality of what's potentially coming in November, is a big problem. And when you have the president tweeting, "We're going to have a red wave," like "All is well, remain calm," type <laughs> of thing, that's actually not helpful because a lot and look, a lot of these folks will say, "Well, you know, no one predicted Donald Trump could win," and that's fair although you can make the argument that Donald Trump won because Democrats stayed home in, in some key states and didn't turn out the way they did for Barack Obama. As someone who was at the NRSC in 2010, on the one hand, the Tea Party movement produced a few candidates who cost us races. But on balance, it was a huge political momentum for Republicans then because, you know, we won six Senate races with 60 plus House seats because voters turned out. And I think- there is big concern right now on the Republican side that either Republican voters aren't as motivated as they should be, or they're not taking as seriously, you know, the potential threat that could be coming down the road. And frankly, there's a handful of House members who are only slowly waking up to that. I mean, I think Republicans had 50 plus members who were outraised last uh, quarter and you're an incumbent getting outraced by a challenger it should never happen if you're if you're working hard and doing your job and taking your election seriously that never happens that shouldn't happen
0: well and I I, I, I think that Trump was able to capture the anti-government sentiment mm-hmm. and I think Bernie Sanders was really able to capture I that as agree. well right both of them had a similar message in terms of the government needs to change or not they're not doing anything for you and they've been, they're both able to capture that unless DC can kind of fix its problems whether it's passing bills, other types of legislation and stuff, is still seen as a place where things kind of don't happen, right? And so every time Trump sends up a tweet, a tweet, excuse me. It is says, a treat, though. It's a it's treat. Well, you're right, treat. the tweets it are a is... treat. That's a fair point. But it says we need to build the wall or whatever. I think he still resonates with that base in terms of saying, well, yeah, right, this place still isn't working. So despite all of his shortcomings that we might agree on here in D.C., I still think people out there say, yeah, you know what, Donald's right, and he's still trying to get that place fixed because those people don't know how to do their jobs, if you will. And I think that's still a sentiment that – it's is a struggle. And maybe people know their congressman locally, right? They're willing to vote for them. But I still think there's the sentiment that D.C. doesn't get it done.
2: Well, look, I don't agree with this in any way, and I think it's terrible for the party. But I do think there are some Trump loyalists who say to themselves in raw political terms, in some ways, while we'd have to deal with some subpoenas and investigations, wouldn't be better politically to have Nancy Pelosi as speaker for two years heading into a presidential election? I can use them as a foil, You know, because right now it's a little hard to say when Republicans control the House and the Senate and the White House, it's a little hard to, you know, point the finger at other folks at the other party. I do think, you know, I don't again, I think it's terrible for the party, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some people who say, well, isn't it, you know, in raw political terms, wouldn't it be better? You know, to have someone I can point the finger at um, if Nancy Pelosi comes back as Speaker.
0: So let's let's swing back to your home state, Brian, of New York, and uh, talk about one of my favorite members, Peter King. Um, you know, I think Peter King is kind of a throwback Republican that we're talking about—a moderate. You know, he's big with unions. He's got very strong on security. He's fairly in the middle on some social issues. He's kind of your typical, you know, throwback Northeast Republican, mm-hmm. and. You know, the Democrat machine, especially in places like New York, certainly can turn off voters. Is he going to be able to hang in there long enough on some of these issues? And the the tax bill, I know it's not a homeland homeroom issue, but the tax bill really wasn't popular in the Northeast uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the impact that it had on people in their homes and things like that. I mean, is he is there enough there? I mean, how does he split the baby here and and hang in there, hang on to his seat?
2: Look, I think. You know, obviously the one big advantage Peter King has is that he's known quantity. Uh, he's always positioned himself as someone who's been fighting for his district, fighting for New York. That is tough to unseat as an outsider candidate. The challenges he has are the ones you touched on. Largely the Republican Party in New York, especially at the top of the ticket, whether it's governor or these other down-ballot races, they're virtually non-existent right now at a statewide level. Uh, I think he'll survive. Look, if someone like Peter King loses... Uh, You might as well get used to the term Nancy uh, Speaker Pelosi, because that's a district that if that goes, they will have won the majority.
1: Obviously, you know, there's been a lot of talk, you know, if that wave happens, is she really going to be the speaker? She hasn't had the easiest time. Do you think she's got a serious chance? I mean,
2: Uh, I I don't underestimate her. Um, oh, at, you can underestimate her. I don't know. I don't, and I think <laughs> yeah. you know. I don't know, especially with Joe Crowley losing in New York. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's an heir apparent. I mean, obviously, Steny Hoyer
0: is he not that person? You don't think?
2: I don't. You know, he. No. I like. You know, Steny Hoyer's. I think well liked personally. He doesn't exactly represent the next generation of Democrats, though. Yeah. If it were not for Nancy Pelosi, I think the majority for Republicans would largely be lost. Uh, I said it in a focus group. Uh, Earlier this summer in Omaha, which is one of the most, despite it being Nebraska, uh, you know, you think it's a red state. Actually, Omaha is probably one of the most 50 50 congressional districts in the country. It's a lot. Hmm. I watched, you know, two groups of 15 independent women voters talking to, to pollster. They all knew who Nancy Pelosi was. They generally did not like her. She's obviously very popular among the left and she raised a lot of money. But I think there is a reason. That you're seeing a lot of Democratic candidates, at least on the campaign trail, try to separate themselves, because it's the San Francisco value. I mean, it just gives Repu- you know, give Republican candidates something to to hang their you know hang their hat around and and saying and painting their opponents into a corner. Look, I mean, I and I think you know I I think they're both you know, especially Senator Schumer is very smart legislatively, even if I disagree with him politically. You know, there will be calls, perhaps, for the abolishize. But if I were them, you know, if you want to focus on something, focus on Dreamers and protecting Dreamers. You know, 80, you know, it has massive support, um, you know, across the country from even Republicans.
0: Well, I think you raise a great point on Dreamers. And, you know, I mean, frankly, that legislation, you're right, it's been close a couple of times. Mm -hmm. You're going to have the Lindsey Grahams there and the Susan Collins around next cycle, right? If you get a couple of uh, folks on the left that are willing to push that out there as a top 10 bill, I think Democrats could probably get that done.
1: They could and i mean if you're all if republicans are trying to court hispanic voters i mean they obviously haven't done a very good job of that over the, yeah. <laughs> with the help of the president i mean wouldn't that be something that you think could at least maybe swing that more into your favor if that was addressed or dealt with before the election
2: i've been saying this for <laughs> years that republicans need to address immigration and especially dreamers um
1: seems like an easy win
2: you'd think yeah. you'd think um I've personally sat down with a number of republican offices and showed them po- the polling data for example on dreamers you know it, even even a majority of Donald Trump's supporters are opposed to deporting dreamers but again some of these folks are captive to some of these louder voices in the minority and it's frustrating.
1: But then the concern should be that, you know, obviously this large group of Hispanic voters, young young and old, have looked at the policies of this administration and of what Congress has failed to do and is obviously they're obviously going to throw their hat the other way. How do you capture some of those Hispanic votes back?
2: Well, that's that's a challenge. And look, I you know, I was one of the many folks with egg on their face in 2016 because I, you know, I've been and I still believe I am right in the long term that, in terms of like the, you know, Republicans are getting an increasing share of the, of a declining share of the vote. White voters are are increasingly a declining share of the American electorate. And so, to win national elections, obviously Donald Trump was able to do yes. it. But the math is what the, what it is. And you look at states like Texas. Look at a state like Arizona. For years, it's been a very Republican, conservative state. It is home to one of the most one of the closest Senate races in the country right now. And part of that is because the state is changing. The demographics are changing. Same with Texas. Texas, I don't think is there yet. I tend to think Senator Cruz will hold on. He's facing a very tough challenge. But it's a state that's changing quite a bit. You know, in 2014, uh, I worked with Senator Cornyn in his reelection. You know, we ran ads in five different languages. Uh, he was down in South Texas all the time, courting his, you know, courting Hispanic voters, um, making sure they knew where he, you know, that he was having a di- dialogue with them. Because if you're, you know, just going to sit in your laurels and say, "Well, Texas is a Republican state," and you're not looking at the math, it is changing just like other parts of the country are.
0: I mean, I guess there's two years uh, I want to throw out there. One was was 1998 when Bill Clinton was under impeachment he was under a lot of pressure and essentially was able to i, th- I think he might have been able to pick up seats that year when everybody thought that it was going to be a tough year for Democrats so that kind of shocked the world a little bit given the tone in, in D.C. at that time period and then 2002 president Bush also picked up seats and that was you know coming off 9/11 and you know some people saw a lot of unity around the country and leadership and those kind of things but really outside of those two years I'm not sure that we've seen the incumbent president able to kind of hold the line, if you will, in a midterm election the way they were both able to do that? Obviously, two different things that were going on. But, you know, do we see anything like that happening this time around, you know, here in 2018, where does Donald Trump shock the world and he's able to actually hold seats and, and pick up a little bit of a majority? Or, you know, is it going to go the other way, more of a 2010 or 2006, where the incumbent president, you know, kind of Lost the majority in one of the one of the houses.
2: Well, I mean, with respect to the president, that's the think, crystal ball, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think with respect to the president, if Republicans do hold the majority in the House, it will be in spite of him. Uh, politically, there is no question that Republicans are going to lose seats. I do think it's an open question whether I think Republicans could pick up seats in the Senate, though. They could also lose the majority. I mean, it could goes both ways. I I do think though, Democrats have also nominated a lot of first time candidates. Uh, whenever that happens, you tend to you know they tend to have things in their background or things they've said or different baggage. It's Speaker Ryan's district actually right now. The Democratic candidate is on the defensive because he's been arrested for a variety of things over the years. So what I'm saying is, I think the headwinds are, you know, against Republicans, but. I think anyone who's making predictions after 2016, you know, to say black and white, here's what's going to happen. Mm, right. You know, we it's can roll ma- the dice. Yeah.
1: Um, well, Brian, we want to be respectful of your time. Is there, you know, anything else you'd like our listeners to, to know about the upcoming midterms or advice you, you know, you'd give to would be voters? You know, you uh, are. Get out and
2: vote. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> look, look, I mean, I think, you know, if you're. If you're a Democrat who is unhappy about the last election, you know, and you didn't vote, you have no one to blame but yourself, uh, because there's a lot of Americans who stayed home and did not vote. And if you're a Republican who's saying, well, you know, we you know, we're going to win anyway. Donald Trump's the president. I mean, this is your wake up call. Get out and vote.
1: And again, I want to thank Brian Walsh, former chief communications strategist for Senate Republican Whip John Cornyn and partner at Rock Solutions. Thank you so much for coming to speak with us today, Brian.
2: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: back to Homeland Homeroom. We're discussing the upcoming midterm elections in November today.
0: I'm James Norton.
1: And I'm Dina Graziano.
0: And we wanted to hear from you about what questions you may have as you ramp up toward November. So let's take a listen.
1: I've heard that midterm elections typically have pretty low turnout, especially among young people. Why is that? And do you think it'll happen again this year? Oh, well, I hope it doesn't happen this year. I really think um, after the last elections, young voters are really energized. At least on the Democratic side, I, I can't speak for Republicans. Many of the policies that the White House has taken on various issues, from you know immigration to you know race and many other you know, very divisive issues for Democrats, I think we're going to see a lot of young people turn out. I mean, if I can just think about the conversations in my house, my son's 13, and I don't remember how I was at 13, but. Um, He's very interested in, you know, what's going on in the news, what the, you know, latest and greatest Trump, whether it was a tweet or policy is. I think we're seeing a lot more energy from from young people today, you know, and, and, you know, more interest in the political process in general.
0: Well, there's definitely more information available for young people. I mean, all the online social media, Twitter, Mm -hmm. Facebook, Instagram, whatever they're on, Snapchat. So they definitely be, can be more informed, you know, whether you're 13 or 18 or mm-hmm. 25, whatever it might be. I do think, though, that, you know, there is a responsibility when it comes to voting in terms of actually going down and making sure you're registered. Absolutely. So that's number one. So if you want to turn out, check with your city hall, town hall. Typically, you can go online. There's plenty of websites. Each secretary of state typically has some in every state where you mm-hmm. can register online. So that's that's first and foremost, um, something to think through and you can do online. And a lot of times you have to be registered to vote, you know, a few months in advance for the actual general election or the primary election. So I think a lot of, especially young folks, I'm not sure they realize that they can't just show up that day, that they have to be prepared to do that.
1: Yeah, agreed. And I, I have seen a lot more um, grassroots kind of campaigns to get voters registered, whether it's old or young, I live in Fairfax County and there's always, you know, reminders everywhere. Are you registered to vote? You know, you can register to vote here. There, there's a lot more convenience, I think, um, at least that I've seen in, in kind of encouraging people to get registered and get involved. I mean, I've never worked a poll, but I, I'll tell you, I've actually been considering volunteering at um, at my poll station this year because I I'm pretty it's, excited it's, about that. I would love to have you. I think they'd love to have
0: you <laughs> down there. I think that's important. I think it's, I mean, you obviously have the conversations at home, which is great. I do think you know, typically 50 percent of people show up to vote. So that means 50 percent of people don't show up for whatever reason. They don't vote that day. And that is troubling. And I think we've seen over the last 10 years, whether it's a local congressional race, a city council race, a presidential race, how close these races are, you know, mm-hmm. coming down to just a number of voters, five voters, 10 voters, a few thousand. And so it really does make a difference. I think some people throw their arms up and say, oh, how can I really make a difference? Well, you really can. Uh, by showing up and voting or going with your neighbors or your friends or your family or those kind of things so I, I agree with you i i hope the turnout is high this year i hope young people you know get involved and and do vote which which whatever their issues are that mm-hmm. they care about either that way they, that they vote those issues and they understand why they're voting for it there's always a lot of questions on the ballot that are usually state issues that they need to you know read up on and become informed. so as you said the more information that's available hopefully it'll drive people out to the polls to, to so they can say they they've They've done something. They've tried to make a difference. Agreed. Hopefully it's a sunny day. Hopefully it's a sunny day. Right. The weather. right? The weather always,
1: you know, you never know about the weather. Right. Well, let's hear from another listener.
0: It looks like there could be a historically high number of women in Congress after November, but most of them will be Democrats. What's the GOP's perspective on that? Does it raise concerns or any self-reflection among Republicans that the women who are inspired to run for office right now are disproportionately Democrats?
1: Self-reflection and Republicans. Interesting.
0: Well, I mean, it's hard hard to it's hard to know the answer to that, not knowing what the numbers may or may not be. And so I do think there are a number of Republican. I mean, just this just this week, we're talking about Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, two Republican women that could make a difference on the Supreme Court. McSally, McSally, Martha McSally in in Arizona. Arizona. Um, So there are a number of Republican women. I think, you know, it's it's always good to have more candidates and more diversity and. You know, in terms of the GOP diversifying itself and outreach,ing and having other you know more issues that they can you know debate and agree on, I think are are important. So, as a party, whether it's you know in the local town, county, community, you know these things, you know hopefully all start locally where you can start to recruit and, and get people involved and, and run for office. Mm-hmm. But I do think it also speaks to. It's not that attractive to run for office anymore. You know, it's a difficult job to have. I mean, you just kind of thankless. Don't you think I mean, isn't it very yeah. difficult to be a city councilor or and state state rep?
1: You know, it used to be a pretty secure job. I wouldn't even I don't think it has a lot well, of job security. Well, that's true too. There's a lot right of turnover there too, right? Absolutely. And the, the time
0: commitment and all those kind of different things is very challenging, not to mention mm-hmm. the the social media aspect of it and how difficult that can be too. Um in terms of what you need to do. So
1: yeah, I also think, though, in general, the Democratic Party um, has always um, had more women, had more minority representation because of the districts that it that they represent. Um, I think Republicans have generally been white males. And I think, you know, if you look at the makeup of the Republican Party in general, there are a handful of women. Um, we are seeing more. Um, obviously, we'd like to see more. But um, I think if you, in, in general, look at the makeup of voters, um, generally GOP wo- voters have been predominantly white male because of a lot of the issues that you all have dealt with have been predominantly white male focused. Well, I mean, if <laughs> I,
0: if you look at the twenty 26th... sixteen Not to
1: offend. Well, I, but, I, listen, I mean, everybody
0: has their own opinion. Yeah. That's why this is a great country. But if you look at the 2016 <laughs> presidential election, I'd say the GOP had a very diverse set of candidates. That ran for president in 2016, if you, if you go down the list and, 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 and name them all, if, I mean, obviously Donald Trump won, but if you look at all the different candidates, I think, I think you'd say that the, the GOP did run But they it. were all
1: men for, who ran for president.
0: Carly Fiorina. Oh, right. Yeah, I Carly forgot that. I did right? forget she about that. Ballot, You're right. right. That's fair. Yep. yep. Short time. <laughs> <laughs> she ran nonetheless. Successful CEO. So there, there's a lot more work that can be done. There's always more work that can be done. And on to, both sides, yeah, frankly. Absolutely. On both sides.
1: And we're going to hear uh, from one more listener today. If Democrats retake Congress, how do you think it'll affect or change the policies coming out of the White House? Oh, I think um, from what you've been hearing and, you know, uh, James and I have spoken about this before, um, you know, the Abolish ICE movement, uh, obviously there's a lot of talk about impeachment investigations. I would say, even as a Democrat, I'm a little concerned in general. Um, I think the Democratic Party needs to come up with a set of policies and principles that it stands for. I feel that, you know, as a Democrat, we've lost our way a bit. And all we've said is, um, you know, we're not Trump. But I do think um, we may need to go back to the drawing board very soon if truly there's going to be a Democratic wave and figure out what are our top you know, four or five priorities, whether that's DREAMers whether that's you know, related to the economy, um, national security issues. I think we need to get back to the drawing board and figure out what Democrats stand for because I think that message is very, very blurred right now, and it can't just be impeachment. That's not going to help the general American voter, and it's definitely not going to do much, I think, to help the country move forward.
0: Yeah, and I think I think if Democrats take Congress, you know, funding is going to be the is going to be a top issue. So, you know, how do, how do you pay for or appropriate money for, you know, Trump policies that they're obviously going to mostly disagree with? Whether you know it's build the wall, homeland security issues that Democrats probably have a different view on. So, I think right there alone, you're going to have a probably some stalled negotiations in Congress right oh, away. Oh yeah, agreed. Coming out of the gate. Um, I would agree with you that it is a little hard to understand what are the top five things that Democrats overall want to do, mm-hmm. you know, if they, if they retake Congress and it can't just be the anti, you know, White House things. I think that probably just plays right into the White House's Agreed. hands. You know, I mean, if you're if you're at the White House and you're like, great, if you're if you're not and you want to right. maintain the majority or you're talking about 2020 mm-hmm. or those kind of things.
1: And we can't take on issues like tax, the tax issue. I mean, obviously, with the president in charge, you're not going to see some of those larger legislative initiatives undone you know, this midterm election, I think. So I really feel like we need to get back to the drawing board and figure out what are our top priorities and what we're going to tackle and actually be able to get done, I think, is even a a bigger issue because there will, unless Democrats take everything, the majority is so large that we can just push through pieces of legislation. We still have the backstop of the White House, who obviously has the ability to veto legislation. So I think we need to figure out what are the core issues and how can we work with this president to get something done for the American people.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, whoever you give credit for in the economy, you could still say the economy is doing well. And so Agreed. I think Trump was definitely able to use that as a as a key talking point in 2016 over Hillary in terms of, you know, what her economic plan may or may mm-hmm. not have been. And I think that was still pretty cloudy looking back in terms of whatever that was. so. I would a lot agree. of work to do. A lot of work to do, for sure, for, for Democrats and you know Republicans, too, because Republicans do lose the majority and the minority. They're also going to have to come up with a plan.
1: Well, thank you, everyone, for your questions and for listening to Homeland Homeroom.
0: Make sure to email info at homelandhomeroom.com with your questions about security. And you can follow us on Twitter at Homeland Pod and on Facebook at Homeland Homeroom. Please also leave us a review on iTunes.
1: Homeland Homeroom is produced by 90 West. Our producer is Emma Jean Weinstein and we recorded the show at Monitor Studios in Washington, D.C.
0: Thank you everyone for listening. And next time on Homeland Homeroom, we'll be talking to Democratic strategist Alex Goldstein to continue the conversation on the 2018 midterm elections and what Democrats need to do on Homeland Security issues to get out the vote.